Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Joshua Kutchin. First, a couple of announcements. Our website is ForbiddenKnowledge.news. That's the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network, where we feature some of your favorite podcasts. You can always get every new episode of Forbidden Knowledge News on Rockfin, Odyssey, and all podcast platforms. We also put clips on YouTube that link to the full episode. Our social media is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And check out Rockfin. Rockfin's where you get our premium content. You also get all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin. Just by going to rockfin.com slash FKN plus or click the link in the description. Also, if you want early access to Corey Hughes' new book, A Warning from History, go to buymeacoffee.com slash JFKbook or click the link in the description. Today, I want to welcome back to the show Joshua Kutchin. He has appeared on a wide variety of paranormal programs discussing his work. He is the author of several books and has been featured on Ancient Aliens and is a recurring roundtable guest on the Where Did the Road Go podcast. Joshua, welcome back. How you doing? Doing well. It's a delight to be here. Yes, man. It's great to have you back. I love our conversations. Today, we're going to get into your new two-part book, Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. And this explores the possibilities that death and the afterlife are not only connected, but possibly central to the entire spectrum of paranormal phenomena and what you call a paranormal ecosystem. And I love that. That's an awesome way to phrase it. Before we get into any of this, there's lots to get into lots of rabbit holes we could go down before we do that remind the audience a little bit about yourself and what led you to this particular book series well uh you know you don't 
I don't think you choose this stuff. I think this stuff chooses you, right? So um, I am a classically trained musician. Uh, I have two master's degrees, one in music, one in journalism. Uh, that's a whole other story, how that road ended up being the one taken. But I'd always had an interest in these topics. Um, around 2015, I got a book, Raincoast Sasquatch, and uh, in there I found some stuff that reminded me strongly of uh, Western European fairy folklore. And I said, well, that's really interesting. Somebody should write a book on that. And I waited and nobody did. So uh, I released my first book, A Trojan Feast, uh, talking about the food and drink exchanges in these encounters in 2015. And since then, you know, depending on how you count it, I have a total of seven books to my name. Although uh, in 2020, uh, my co-author Timothy Renner and I released Where the Footprints End, and that was conceived as one book and ended up being split into two because it got too big. And similarly, Ecology of Souls was intended to be one book and again, got split in two because <laughs> I just kept finding stuff to put in there. So um, Ecology, was, Ecology of Souls was inspired by a couple of different things. Um, the first thing that had always sort of stuck with me was uh, in, in the wake of writing Communion, Anne Streber's, sorry, Whitley Streber's wife, Anne, uh, was collecting a lot of correspondence from people who read his book. Uh, to, because, you know, at that time, without the internet, it was really useful to connect with people and you had to do it through pen and paper, right? This is like 87. Um so she was collecting all this stuff and trying to sort of note patterns that she saw. And uh, Whitley has talked about this on numerous occasions, but he came into the office one day and scrawled on a piece of yellow uh, pad uh, were the words in Anne's handwriting. This has something to do with what we call death. And that's such an evocative thing to say and runs so contrary to the popular conception of what UFOs are um, that it never really left me. But, you know, I'll be darned ever since I heard that. Um, I've sort of kept an eye out for connections here and there, and they just keep piling up. I mean, one of my one of my favorite things whenever people refuse to budge from the extraterrestrial hypothesis is to say, okay, well, you know, not only do synchronicities manifest in people's lives, I don't know how little green scientists do that, but also uh, people who are aboard craft or in alien abduction scenarios oftentimes report seeing dead people um, usually dead loved ones although there's some really interesting cases where people see someone that they don't realize is dead and only realize it later um so you take that and you place it up against the work of kenneth ring you know who in the 90s was drawing a lot of comparisons between near-death experiences and the alien abduction scenario and you place that against the work of eddie bullard who in the 80s was linking uh alien abductions to shamanic initiation and you think about how, how shamanic initiation is basically a rebirth ritual and, and and a picture starts to form over time the other thing that really always the other thing that really always compelled me was uh you know one of my favorite works ever written on ufos is jacques valet's 1969 passport to magonia and in passport to magonia he does a, a th i think a very thorough job in saying look this older body of folklore especially around you know the fairies but especially around the western european concept of fairies strongly uh mirrors what people report in this modern abduction you know, mythology and i say the mythology lovingly <laughs> like I, I think there's an objective reality to it i'm not using that pejoratively um but there's something that sort of gets left on the table in Passport to Magonia, which is um, what would a you know 13th century version of Passport to Magonia look like? Well, whereas Passport to Magonia says these aliens look a lot like these fairies, I would argue that you know a version of Passport to Magonia written in uh, the medieval era 
would say, hey, these fairies look a lot like the human dead. And indeed, prior to the rise of theosophy at the end of the at the end of the 19th century, um, prior to that, uh, people didn't think of fairies necessarily as elemental nature spirits and all these sort of lovey-dovey things. They often associated them with the dead. And you can find tons of stories in a lot of the old literature of, you know, either people becoming fairies after they died or people who uh, were seen with the fairies after they died. I mean, there's so many stories that I even talked about in a Trojan feast where, uh, where people would be invited into, you know, a fairy palace and they were about to drink or eat something. And it was a dead neighbor who came up and said, Hey, I'm here too. Don't eat or drink that or you'll be stuck here. <laughs> so, so, so there's this, there, there's, there's, there's sort of a chain of custody linking that the dead through the fairies to, to the UFO experience today. Right on. Now, to get a little bit further synopsis of the book, what are the different aspects besides ufology and and fairy lore do you cover when it comes to death and its connections to what we understand as the paranormal? Well, the full title of the book, because I can still consider it one book, even though it's two 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 volumes with a companion. Um, the full title of the book is Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. And I, I I tried for the longest time not to add that subtitle because it kind of sounds pretentious. A new mythology. I've answered everything. That's not what I was trying to get across. What what did seem to happen as I was looking into this was that um, the, the connections between a lot of these phenomena and death just absolutely know no bounds. Um, it uh, It is something that it, once you start looking for it you, you start seeing it in all these different disciplines so obviously you talk about the near-death experience because it's connected there right um but you also end up talking about um shamanic initiations and that's a very broad generalized term but these sort of initiatory ceremonies where people who act as intercessors between our world and spirit worlds in, in, in indigenous societies the sort of rites that they're put through which are often explicitly like rebirth rites sometimes people are buried alive and exhumed but the idea is to push you into an altered state of consciousness so then you also talk about altered states of consciousness right and it's interesting you know a lot of these altered states of consciousness are um induced in these indigenous societies uh through the use of of plant uh, entheogens and the number of plant entheogens that have some sort of connection to the world of the dead is quite striking i mean everyone more or less is familiar with ayahuasca and one translation of ayahuasca is vine of the dead or, or vine of the souls so there's obviously some strong death connections that you can go through there also through the work of terence mckenna who graces the the, the cover then you talk about the fairy stuff and the UFO stuff, but I was surprised that you could carry a lot of the stuff over into the cryptid realm as well. Um, you know, for example, uh, Mothman is closely associated with death, you know, the tragedy of the Silver Bridge. But uh, the symbol of, of Mothman being bird-like is also a, a strong indicator that there are death overtones to that story because birds are death symbols universally. And I I, I sometimes I say universally and I don't really mean universally. Like there are places here and there where it's not used. No, I mean, amongst, amongst our ancestors, regardless of where you came from, there was someone in the region, some people in the region who really associated birds with death and birds specifically with the human soul as it's released upon death. So there's all this stuff. And, and that's part of the reason that it got so big that I had to split it in two, because it became apparent that 
you had to talk about some of these older concepts of the soul that we sort of lost touch with. You know, we used to believe that our souls could separate from our bodies and wander about on their own. We used to believe that maybe we had multiple souls within us. That's the idea of polypsychism, which you see in the Norse and Egyptian mythologies. So I could do one of two things when I wrote this book. I could either, um, I could either reference these things endlessly and talk about UFOs and keep circling back and having these large digressions. Or I could just write a book that's basically uh, preparatory uh, for the second book, which is more or less the UFO-focused book. So that's why it ended up being so big. And it, it kind of touches... I mean, I think I think one of the few things that is has some paranormal elements to it that plays into the picture is, is time. But, you know, whenever I write about time, <laughs> my brain breaks. <laughs> so I sort of left that off the table. And the book's long enough as it is. So. Right on. Now, when we're looking at ancient Egyptians and pre-dynastic Egyptians, it seems that they had a great understanding of the afterlife. You'd look at things like the Book of the Dead, possibly that they even had knowledge on how to reincarnate into specific bloodlines. Talk a little bit about your understanding of the Egyptians' profound knowledge of what was happening in the afterlife. Well, the interesting thing about the Egyptians is that um, they never really decided upon a set number of souls. Um, depending on the dynasty, depending on the era, uh, you might find up to nine souls inhabiting the human body. Um, but these all sort of had their own uh, distinct aspects. You've got the uh, the Ka and the Ba, which were you know a dwarf and a, a little flying figure. Again, flying figure, like like with the bird stuff. Um, but uh, there also seems to be an intense awareness of what happens after that transition. The afterlife trial, um, you know, oftentimes embarking on a solar bark that takes you to what I what I call a stellar underworld, an underworld where there are stars, where the sun has actually descended. Of course, that makes the sun and the moon death symbols in, in and of themselves because they sort of die each day or night and always return. Um, but, you know, you would have uh, these certain figures that would accompany you on that journey, uh, typically, you know, referred to as psychopomps. And psychopomps are something that you see across a lot of different mythologies. In Egypt specifically, it was Anubis, the jackal-headed god. But psychopomps are uh, these figures that escort you over that threshold from life into death. And uh, they, they can be associated with religions. They can also be uh, folk figures. You know, the Grim Reaper is sort of the, the modern West's uh, psychopomp nowadays. Um, but they could also be natural phenomena as well. Um, they could be things, as I alluded to, like the sun and the moon, but also uh, animals, you know. And <laughs> I'll be damned. Um, you look at sort of the animals that have these psychopomp associations, and they're all things that pop up time and again in the UFO literature. Birds, obviously. Owls specifically, you know, depending on the cultures, and uh, things like horses and uh, dogs, which I know that probably doesn't uh, ring as something familiar to ufology um, for a lot of people at first, but there's a strong association between these animals and uh, and 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 UFOs. I mean, people forget that the first livestock mutilation of the modern era was you know, Snippy the horse. <laughs> so uh, that sort of connection and relationship. Uh, I think speaks to to some shared DNA, so to speak, for that. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I no, I was just going to say, it is, it is very interesting, <laughs> the connections we see with animals and ufology, especially owls and other things that 
appear as some sort of like screen memory or something like that, right. as well as the animals being associated with some sort of spirit guides. I've had my own psychedelic experiences with animals as spirit guides as well. So that's very interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's when you look at sort of animals that end up being psychopomps, because it's not just those three, those are the three that you see across all cultures, birds, horses, and, and dogs. Um, and they're often the ones that are most closely associated with these sort of shamanic traditions as well. But you can find other examples like, you know, uh, turtles <laughs> or uh, or bats, depending on, on you know, the location. But there's always these themes that crop up. So with turtles, it's sort of resiliency, the slow and steady wins the race, that kind of idea. But more often than not, you see themes of navigation or companionship or the ability to travel vast distances that we as human beings cannot. Uh, obviously, horses and, and birds certainly do that. Um, so with that in mind, uh, you have other transportation symbols that also take on a psychopomp meaning. Um, interestingly enough, Anne Streber had a near-death experience where she found herself in a subway station, which sort of has that transportation theme. But more often and more familiar to people would be the idea of the boat to the afterlife, which people can see in the Greek uh, figure that rows people across the river Styx, Karen, right? I thought it was Charon for the longest time, and it's Karen, so now I feel like, <laughs> don't be a Charon, right? Um so yeah, uh, so so you've got these ideas of boats, and, and you know, especially common in island Southeast Asian cultures as well. The idea of these boats, the afterlife, but it really is one of those things that seems to be universal because there was this idea that the afterlife was always, you know, just over the horizon across the sea, or it was over that mountain range over there, or it was underneath the earth. But what happens when those locations are? mapped by a society as we have today like we know that there's no afterlife here on earth more or less like we can we can split hairs but like from a rational standpoint the afterlife isn't over that mountain chain and it isn't across the ocean what happens to that metaphor of the boat to the afterlife the boat to the other world i would argue that you know on a cultural level and this isn't to say that we're making it up it's to say that we're somehow interacting with this legitimate objectively real phenomenon I would say that our culture graphs that onto the stars, you know, and even some atheistic interpretations of the universe still can't quite uh, shake that sense of wonder that they have when they look at the night sky. And if you look at the UFO, the UFO is a transportation metaphor, you know, made incarnate. It's all about where do they come from? Where are they going? How do they get here? You know, where are they going to take me? So I think with that, it sort of puts into, um, into perspective the, the, uh, the connection between ufos and death at least on a symbolic level and then from there you just keep on building out more and more things and it seems like there's there's something there i don't know if i got it right but i think that i shine some light on some things that are worth considering yeah and you were mentioning that we can't really perceive or see what the afterlife is it's not over any mountain it's not in any country it's we can't travel to get there but could it possibly be just in a different spectrum beyond our vision surrounding us at all times it's existing here but we just can't perceive it what do you think about that oh i suspect that's probably hey so i mean you know i'm i I have a lot of stuff that I wrestle with on this topic, right? Because I am a practicing Christian, but I'm interested in these topics. And I think there's a lot of um, good work that's going into trying to listen to a lot of these accounts and look back through these older cultures, which had their own very important things to say. I do. I am sympathetic to the idea of, I mean, for lack of a better term, what you're describing there is interdimensionality, right? 
Um, and I do think that if we look at a lot of these other traditions, you know, if you look at what happens to the brain during the psychedelic experience where it's almost like filters are removed, it seems like there is something to this interdimensional idea. My my main problem with this interdimensional idea is that um, most people that I talk to who, who, who trot out that term, I don't necessarily know that they grasp the idea of what a dimension is. Because if you read essays like Flatland, that famous essay where there's a two-dimensional person and a finger comes down and touches the paper... It, it, the finger doesn't look like a finger. It just looks like a circle. You, you literally can't comprehend, you know, theoretically, you would not be able to comprehend these other dimensions. So, and they always, people always think of it as like a place you go and it's not, no, it's here. It's just, so it gets a bit difficult to talk about. And I have this sort of attitude of, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So that's why I tend to stick to terms like the other world, um, because there were a lot of different cultures that had this belief in the other world. And I'm sure a lot of them would say that it was sort of, um, is a fancy word, imbricated <laughs> upon our own landscape. I mean, sort of overlain. I mean, you know, there's some indications that the Welsh certainly felt this way about Anne Wiffen. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Maybe not. But their own version of the other world, there was this idea that it was sort of an overlay of our own landscape. So that does speak to the idea that there's, you know, a, an actual dimensional component to that. Um, but, you know, I, I, the, it seems like the best technology we found for switching dimensions Um is made out of of plants and fungi, you know? <laughs> well, let's get into near-death experiences a little bit. I think these are probably the closest we'll ever get to understanding what's really going on in the afterlife is from people who have been closest to that type of realm. I, I also find it very interesting, the similarities between near-death experiences, but they're not too similar that they're all the same, and some can have profound differences and be completely different, and there's a, a huge spectrum of experiences that people have, including, like you were saying, seeing aliens and otherworldly creatures, or just the opposite, they have an alien experience and their dead loved ones are on the craft. Yeah, that's something that... Um you know, I kind of, I mean, I, I have an idea of what to do with, but it still makes me uncomfortable. The idea that, you know, grays for lack of a better term, uh, show up during some near death experiences and religious figures show up in some UFO abductions. <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, you, you hear stories about Jesus on a spaceship or something. You're like, okay, this person's lost it. But if there is a connection between the two, it, it kind of makes a degree of sense, um, that you would see religious figures. Um, so, who boy, um, you know, I'm interested in a lot of these topics, and uh, I often say that uh, there is only one hill that I'll die upon as actually like being like, no, people are ignoring this is absolutely 100% real, and that's Siphonama. Um, I think that some of the research that's out there is absolutely stellar. It's done uh, under the same uh restrictions and with the same care that you would see with any other laboratory experiment it's just that it can't it can't be so the scientific establishment ignores it but a close second uh for me is is the near-death experience uh because some of these stories are just so so compelling um we do have data to back it up where people report things at times when their brain is completely inactive so at the very least that suggests that consciousness is you know, scattered throughout our body as opposed to being just in the brain. Um, of course, I feel like the brain is a receiver of consciousness rather than a generator of consciousness, but that's neither here nor there right now. Um, but, you know, some of the stories have this this incredible veridicality uh, with these with these little bits of information that 
end up being verified later. You know, there's a famous example, I believe, from Washington State of a woman who had a cardiac arrest. And uh, she floated out of her body and uh, floated outside of the hospital room where she saw a sneaker on a ledge um, of, of one of the windows. And she returns to life. They resuscitate her. And she mentions this to the nurse. The nurse is like, what are you talking about? And uh, they do a thorough search of the entire hospital. And, you know, only by opening all the windows and looking out on either side, did they find that, yes, there was a shoe on the windowsill. I guess some kid had placed it there or something um, that was identical to her description. Uh, Then you also have stories of people who have family members die while they are too in the near-death experience state. Or, you know, family members have died and and word hasn't gotten out to the rest of the family. And they'll come back from their near-death experience and they'll say, hey, you know, Uncle Bob was in my near-death experience. And everybody's like, no, Uncle Bob's fine. Let me call him up. And they call him up and they're like, nobody answers, you know. And it turns out he he has passed away. There are people who have learned that they were adopted during near-death experiences. So there's a lot of, I mean, I I suppose this still falls into the realm of anecdotal, but there's still, there's a lot of evidence that's... That's really compelling. And then you add to this all the sort of high strangeness um, that you see in some of these near-death experiences that uh, leads over into other other encounters. And I would I would make a careful argument, because there are plenty of outliers, but I would make a careful argument that a lot of these contact modalities, especially the shamanic initiation, especially the altered states of consciousness, especially the UFO abductions, um, have a shared suite of attributes that you see in the near-death experience. You know, bright lights, feelings of love, feelings of belonging. You know, obviously there's some negative abductions, but we'll you know set those aside for now because I'm going to circle back around to negative near-death experiences. Um, but you know, the the uh, the accessing of um, the accessing of of inaccessible knowledge, for lack of a better term, that I alluded to earlier. Um, Time dilation, you know, time compression. People will say that they could swear that they were in their near-death experience for hours and it was, you know, 15 minutes or or vice versa. Of course, you're not dead. You're not in the near-death experience for hours, but I mean, you know, vice versa in terms of it felt felt shorter and it was actually longer. Um, And all these things pop up in all these other experiences, you know, And, and that to me is so suggestive that I'm not saying that alien abductions are near-death experiences, but I suspect that we might be going to the same place. Mm. Now, you know, I alluded to earlier, and you did as well in your question, which I'm trying to keep a pin in and remember here, um, that, you know, near-death experiences have a certain amount of shared qualities. And, I, you know, the lion's share, you can lump into these positive categories. But there is... um, a trend that uh, Raymond Moody, when he was doing his you know, investigation of near-death experiences in the 70s, started to notice was that there are negative near-death experiences. Um, there was a famous example, um, I believe from the 90s, don't quote me on that, uh, but the na- gentleman's name was Howard Storm. And uh, he had a duodenal perforation while on a, I believe he was accompanying a field trip in Paris. And uh, he was unable to see, get medical treatment uh, for a while, so he just sort of sat in the hospital waiting to see a doctor. And during that time frame, he had this negative near-death experience where he sort of felt himself get up, kind of felt like he was doing it on his own bodily, and these voices were calling to him down the hallway, and the hallway got foggier, and the hallway got darker, and then the voices would be like, you know, she can hear us, you know, really creepy. It's a creepy story when you read it. Um, and then eventually he's immersed in darkness, and these things are just biting off bits and pieces of his flesh. 
And he, uh, even though he was an atheist, he called out to Jesus. I think he started singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, because it's the only thing he could remember. Although I think all he remembered was, Jesus loves me, this I know, Jesus loves me, this I know, Jesus loves me, this I know. <laughs> but um, he calls out and he, he claims that he met these beings of light and they uh, sort of gave him uh, this, this sort of apocalyptic vision of what would happen if the world didn't turn itself around. Apocalyptic visions also being a common, you know, a common feature in a lot of alien abductions, right? And uh, returned him to life. And he had some strange activity that sort of lingered afterwards. Also, again, I would be remiss if I didn't say that something that also happens in alien abductions. You know, people will have these experiences aboard the UFO and then their house will fill with poltergeist activity. Well, guess what happens after after near-death experiences? Same thing. People start seeing spirits and poltergeist activity. They start ruining electronics, all sorts of things like that. Also, it's very interesting that some people have what is perceived as like a life review where they get to see aspects of their life and where they could have made different choices and some are not. And then some are actually offered the choice if they want to mm. enter back into their stage of life or not. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, you know, we have this pop culture idea of what the near death experience is, And two of the hallmarks that we normally think of are the life review and the tunnel experience. And, uh, you know, from what I can discern, um, they're common enough to be worth noting, but they're not, you know, they don't happen in every single near-death experience, at least compared to things that are much more common, like feelings of love, leaving the body, etc. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting. You don't see a lot of life reviews in the alien abduction phenomenon. <clears throat> and I think that might be a clue... I don't have the answer, but I think it might be a clue as to how that experience differs uh, qualitatively compared to the near-death experience. What you do get, and I sort of mentioned this earlier, but I think it's interesting to sort of hold them in, uh, in juxtaposition to one another. You don't get a look back at the individual in alien abductions. You get a look forward at the collective. Does that make sense? So, you know, near-death experience, you see your life flashing before your eyes, things that have happened. But in these alien abduction scenarios, you see the fate of the world played, again, often like a slideshow, in front of you. And then that come, you know, usually leaves with the message like, you know, the world's going to end in 2010 unless everybody <laughs> unless everybody loves each other. And I guess we did okay because we're still here. <laughs> you know, yeah. these prophecies inevitably fail. But, uh, but I think it's interesting to sort of... Uh, sometimes when something is a direct opposite... Um, I, I think that it's still kind of representation. You know, I, I forgot that you were a musician yourself, so maybe this this analogy will uh, sort of make some sense. But if you sound a, a C uh, above an A, that's a minor third. But if you play an A above a C, that's a major sixth. And those are are two different intervals, theoretically speaking, but they're comp they're composed of the same two pitches. It's just octave placement, right? And sometimes I wonder if something is so deliberately the opposite like the past of the individual versus the future of the collective, if that's not still an expression of the same components or the same idea. Now, uh, I, I want to delve into, I want to get your insights into a phenomenon that's called walk-ins or soul walk-ins. I've actually interviewed a couple of people that claim to be this very thing to where they've actually died or had a near-death experience, and when they come back, 
they're not them anymore. They are a completely different personality. They have, they may have past memories of who they were, but they have none of the same attributes. Everything is different. They don't even enjoy the same things. May, maybe they even have a different accent. And in some of these mm-hmm. cases, their family completely disowns them because they are so different. They can't. They don't want to to be a part of their lives anymore. So I find this one very fascinating. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this? phenomena um so a lot (laughs) i'll answer that with a story um or an anecdote i suppose um a lot of what i try to do is to push myself into uncomfortable territory and some of the ideas that i ended up being sort of forced to play with in ecology of souls were ideas that i was uncomfortable with not like spiritually or ideologically or anything but just ideas that always kind of struck me as as silly you know pre-birth memories aboard you know ufos that was definitely one of them that i've come uh, around to to thinking differently about but walk-ins were one of those too so i still retain i guess a a degree of of skepticism regarding walk-ins but again it's the thing that i always take away from whenever i finish a book is the consistency of these let's call them motifs you know across time and there was an idea you know that uh that in certain uh cultures uh, the souls of of young people weren't as strongly attached to their bodies because they're you know they were fresh off the presses right um and of course you know the walk-in term didn't really get popularized until ruth montgomery and i think the 1970s and uh she said, oh, there are a couple of people who claim extraterrestrial walk-ins. And then she follows it with a book, finding a ton of people who have extraterrestrial walk-ins. But there does seem to be a, a history or at least a tendency in some cases of people to experience these abrupt personality changes after their experiences, especially their near-death experiences, where they feel as if it's somebody else inside them. And, and not in the way that like would think of possession, because possession's like two people in the building, right? <laughs> this is like, nope, the other person has left. And here we are. Um I think it's interesting if you look back at some of the older changeling folklore, and if anybody isn't familiar with that, it's the idea that the fairies would come and take your child and replace it with a fairy baby. There seem to be a lot of indications that there's something going on at a metaphysical level rather than a physical level. Um, You can find stories of uh, people removing the changelings, which was always thought of like a physical substitution, and there's no real swap of children. Um, sometimes, you know, the child is out of sight and all of a sudden the children is, oh, it's my old baby again. But sometimes the children, the child goes from being this changeling and then they'll just sort of relax and they'll sort of wake up and be like, oh, mom, here I am. So it kind of makes me wonder if there's not something going on there that's similar to the walk-in phenomenon as well. Um, you know, there's also some stories that you can find of, uh, every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, there's just one story that I found from Brazil. You can find a couple of others like this. Uh, of an individual who claimed that a portal opened in his kitchen and he was drugged through and he watched on a screen as this sort of alien being took over his body. And if you if you approach that on a literal level, it sounds nuts, right? I mean, it just sounds it sounds like bad sci-fi. But if you think about this as sort of a metaphor for that sort of displacement that might happen when something like a walk-in occurs, well, then it kind of makes a lot more sense. And you know, luckily enough for him, he was uh, he was able to. Um, he was able to, you know, rejoin himself. But the walk, the walk-in idea is also tied to this idea that I, I mentioned earlier: the idea of the wandering soul, the idea that your 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 body and soul weren't always attached, and your soul could wander away from your body during times when you were vulnerable. So these were sleep, uh, trance, meditation, or illness. In fact, there's an idea you find in a lot of different cultures, both in the old world and the new world, that people um, who were asleep shouldn't be startled awake because otherwise, you know, you're you're uh, your soul wouldn't be able to find its way back to your body. Uh, you can see this sort of in some of the Japanese, um, the Japanese myths. I just found this the other day of the Rakurakubi, which were the ones who like, you know, their, their heads or the Nukakubi, the ones whose heads would fly off and they would go away. Well, how do you, how do you defeat the Nukakubi um, is you hide the body so that the head can't find the body. So it's again, this idea of the soul sort of being in the head and wandering off when you sleep and, and can't come back. So with that, concept back in place if we sort of incorporate that the idea that your soul could sort of leave the building of your body empty for something else to move in starts to make a, a little bit more sense right on now let's get into a little bit the connections between sleep states dreams astral projections and what could possibly be the other side or the afterlife in dreams you have experiences i know i've had plenty of dreams where i meet dead relatives or i'll come into contact with a deceased person and every time i die in my dreams i'm awake the possibility that this reality is a dream and when we wake up it's a, our, our real reality what do you think about the connections yeah. with dreaming in the afterlife well they're, they're they're quite old um you know if you go back to sort of classical traditions um you know whenever hermes another psychopomp right and a trickster whenever hermes would take you uh past death you would sort of walk by people who were who were asleep you know um and uh, his his uh, Kikarion, his his staff was had the power to put sleep people to sleep as well. So you can kind of see that connection there. Um, Thanatos was the Greek winged personification of death, and he was brother to Hypnos, um, who was sleep. So sleep and death were brothers. And of course, hypnosis means you know sleep condition. So um, I think it's interesting when you look at the number of people who die in their sleep. You know, people tend to die around that sort of. 3 a.m. Uh, window a lot, not always, but I think that that's that uh, some statistics have shown that there's a little bit of an uptick around that time of night. And then you have this sense that I think we all have that uh, that the dream space is a place that you go. Like it doesn't feel like something that happens to you sometimes. You know, depending on how you dream. I'm not a great dreamer. I had a pretty rocking nightmare last night, but for the most part, I'm not a great dreamer, but you talk to some of these people who, you know, have this sense. And, uh, you know, the thing that I always come back to 
whenever I've had, have you ever had, a, I'll ask you this. Have you ever had a flying dream? And like the first thing you think is, oh yeah, this, this feels familiar. I, I remember how to do this. You yeah, know? All the and time. that's like, what the hell is that? You know what I mean? Like, why do we have that feeling? Um, and I think that suggests a lot, just that simple little anecdote. Um, but you see a lot of the things that we see in these other contact modalities to call them that you see a lot of those same attributes in dreams, you know, there's this idea of time compression or time you know, dilation, depending on your perspective. You know, I thought I was asleep for hours, but I was asleep for 15 minutes or, you know, vice versa. Um, there's also this tendency, which I find really interesting of, of some people, not all of us, but some people, I'm one of them who, um, unless you wake up and write down your dream right away, you're probably going to forget it. Um, and that's something that you hear uh, from people after their you know, psychedelic trips and oddly enough, there was at least one uh, alien abductee. I mean, that might be that might be why alien abduction memories are suppressed, right? It might be this, a similar mechanism at play. There was one alien abductee by the name of Steve Boucher um, who would deliberately write down his encounters right after he had them because he knew that if he didn't, he would forget it. So again, it sounds like an altered state of consciousness. It sounds like a dream. It sounds like all those things. Um, so yeah, it's sometimes I think it might indeed be a parallel continuum that we go to. Um, it's, it's so common to have a visitation from a, a dead loved one in a dream right after they die. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the skeptical answer that, oh, like, well, their death was sort of on your mind and, uh, you know, you just sort of have this day residue that crops up in your dreams. But at the same time, uh, I think a lot of us who've had those dreams, get the sense that there's a level of authenticity there that that particular explanation doesn't quite convey. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I used to, I used to just roll my eyes at people's dreams. Cause you know, they always, they're like synchronicities, right? They mean more to the people it happens to than they do to, to somebody else they're telling. But uh, over time I've come to realize that, that I think that it is indeed part of all this, uh, all this stuff because people have, I mean, like how many things, how many times do people have, these experiences and they refer to things that are quite dreamlike, you know, not only the logic, the high strangeness logic is dreamlike, but you'll have these um, discontinuities, I think is what Kenneth Ring called them. The idea that like, you know, I was walking down a hallway and then all of a sudden I was in this middle of this field. Well, you hear that in dreams and you hear that, you know, in things like uh, alien abductions and things like that. So it, it sort of makes me wonder if, you know, if some of these alien abductions aren't sort of happening at that level rather than at a physical level. Yeah, it, it does seem a lot of accounts of people's contact experiences tend to start after they're in a sleep state and they're usually taken somewhere and wake up in the next morning and have trouble recalling their experiences. Yeah, uh, and like, you know, go ahead. Sorry, I was, I was just going to I was just going to say, like, you're, you said that and it reminded me, like, there's so many encounters that happen at night. You know, why is that? I don't think it's just misidentification. I don't think it's just the fact that we get spooked at night. I think that maybe these things um, need us in this sort of, they either need the altered state of sleep or the, the phenomenon itself might be photophobic. You know, um, what I mean by that is, you know, when they were taking pictures and seances in the late uh, 19th century, if the, the flash would sometimes cause the, the ectoplasm to sort of whip back into the medium's body. If you think ectoplasm is a real thing, at least that provides a mechanism for, for what's going on there. So yeah, I, I, um, I have grown to suspect that whatever lies behind the alien abductions, whatever intelligence that is 
simply finds it easier to interact with us, take us, if we are already slipped into that altered state of consciousness known as sleep. I want, while we're in the realms of altered states of consciousness, I want to get your thoughts on what is occurring when we're having psychedelic experiences, shamanic experiences. And I'm, I'm going to tell you a couple of that, one that a, a guest and friend of mine had, and one of my own, just to get your thoughts on this. Uh, my guest, I had him on a, a few weeks ago. You might have heard of uh, Recluse or Sneven Snyder before. Um, he was telling me about a psychedelic experience he had on mushrooms uh, and it was actually towards the tail end of that experience and he walked into I believe it was like some kind of children's party or something and everything every everything else was normal and he, he he prefaced it by saying that he normally doesn't have like very vivid visual psychedelic experiences and neither do I you know you might see the the tracers or bright colors and things like that but never real uh, profound hallucinations or anything. Well, he said when he walked in, he noticed that there were like six, seven foot tall gray aliens walking around amongst this <laughs> children's party, like examining the kids and seemingly like looking around and observing things. And it was very real. It wasn't like, you know, some sort of uh, hallucination that you would think would occur during a psychedelic, especially a tail end of a psychedelic experience. And then with me, it was also on mushrooms, and I was with an ex-girlfriend of mine, and we were doing a what you would call a type of a regression to, to release childhood trauma, and we had done this before for some experiences, and this time it was very profound. She actually somehow walked me through to this uh, intense childhood traumatic experience I had whenever we're doing my regression. She said that she saw that there was a spirit attached and she was able to release it as I was reliving that experience. And then after that regression was over, we had that we were just talking and I, I felt amazing. I thought the, the experience was over and this was again the tail end of my experience. All of a sudden, she shapeshifts into this giant reptilian and my whole house turns into like a dungeon and she starts telling me that, yeah, I'm the attachment that was attached to you. I got you. It's this far. You don't love me anymore. You don't want me anymore. And like this thing started kind of chasing me around my house. And long story short, I had this kind of like exorcism experience where she was meditating and I was, I somehow just jumped in the shower and I started like puking up this black stuff. And I heard this loud commanding voice say, no, you're being deceived. It was pretty intense. And all of a sudden, everything just snapped back to normal. And she said as she was meditating, she could see that this, there was, that this attachment had manifested and took over my perception. And she was able to you know, somehow get rid of it by calling on her angels or something like that. And this, these experiences were, I had never experienced anything like this yeah. before. And I was still skepti skeptical about a spirit attachment type stuff and until it happened to me you know it was it was pretty yeah. profound and it changed the way i looked at it for sure but you, you it was again face back in the tube after right that moment, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah yeah again yeah. it was during a psychedelic experience though so again yeah. many people are going to discount that because you know right. oh you're hallucinating oh you're on drugs but i believe there's a lot more to these experiences than just having the effects of of a of drugs well, I, I really would agree with that. Um, there are a couple of thoughts. I mean, we could probably 
you know, take the rest of this talk just to unpack the, some of the stuff that you talked about. Um, but my first thing is that there are examples of, of certain substances giving people inaccessible knowledge. And I think that's the closest thing that we can get to an objective, uh, an objective proof that this sort of thing has some sort of reality outside of ourselves. Um, you know, there's a famous example of, uh, Kenneth Kinzinger, uh, who was an anthropologist in the Amazon who uh, learned from uh, several people who had drunk ayahuasca that his his one of his grandparents had passed away. And then he got that confirmed several days later on the radio. So you also have stories of people getting sort of this objective knowledge during these experiences as well, firsthand. So there's that that I would say. I would also say that a lot of the uh, a lot of the a lot of the brain scans, and I sort of mentioned this earlier, but a lot of the brain scans that people have conducted on people who are under the influence of these substances um, tend to not confirm their biases. You know, the idea was that, oh, you're seeing all this miraculous stuff. Your brain must be firing on all cylinders. And to the contrary, oftentimes these quiet a lot of the noise that we have. So I think that's another interesting data point. Um, you know, it's it's hard to to not bring DMT into the conversation here a little bit because we know that it's in our bodies. And uh, I suspect that a lot of these experiences that we have are somehow facilitated by DMT. Not that they are hallucinations, but they're the DMT is the key to the next room as opposed to being the room itself. You know what I mean? Um, now, in some ways, I think all of these are, are moot points because at the end of the day, there are people who have had very positive experiences from a lot of these, you know, encounters. And it's kind of along the lines of what I say when I, I talk about how the last group that you can absolutely um, scrutinize and make fun of and trash on with impunity is the experiencer is the paranormal experiencer, you know, and uh, that doesn't say that there aren't other groups that aren't marginalized, but like, there's nobody really coming to the defense of the paranormal experiencer. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, he's crazy. He's a crackpot. Let's make fun of him. Let's deride him. And the thing that kills me about that is that even if the person is, um, if the person's honest in any way, sharing this experience. And even if it is all in their head or it was a misidentification or whatever, the, the, the trauma from that experience is, is genuine. You know, it's, it's, it's as real as if it had actually happened. And I think that that deserves some, uh, a little bit more compassion than we're showing, but similarly um, it kind of doesn't matter if some of these uh, altered states of consciousness that are you know brought about by entheogens, it doesn't matter if they're genuine or not because the after effects are often, genuine and almost literally measurable you know what i mean um you know people are starting to use ketamine and and uh psilocybin in terminal end of life care and people always report uh, a positive outlook after that they come to grips with the fact that they're embedded within a deeper reality and they shouldn't be afraid of their deaths um and you know they're, they're always going to be those people who want some sort of objective proof and so you have to point them to that inaccessible knowledge or you know another really fascinating thing that i find which sounds a bit like sort of what you experience with your girlfriend is sort of the shared experience under the influence um there was a there was one case that i collected um that was an individual who uh was i think he was taking uh the toad version of dmt i can never recall which one that is but he was taking that one and his sitter the person who was like stone cold sober because she was you know taking care of his well-being she saw a ball of light emerge from his chest during the experience and if memory serves in this particular encounter he spoke to 
an old friend of his that had passed away and his sitter described the same woman to a T being in the room, even though he, she'd never met her, you know? So it's like, if that story is true, then that suggests that there's something beyond just being high or something. Another story that is sort of near and dear to me because I heard it firsthand. I can still remember exactly where I heard it. Cause this was a young lady that I was um, playing music with. I was flying on an airplane with her and she told me about uh, a time that she and her husband had, had done mushrooms and uh, I might be getting, the him and the her in this story mixed up, but I believe she is the one who went inside uh, to get a glass of water. And she said, as she was, as she was getting it through the kitchen window, she saw this like bright light come down from the sky and just completely illuminate her husband. And she runs out there and he's like, it looked just like a UFO was about to take me, man. And she's like, well, that's uh, why do we, why do we both see that? You know, and maybe, you know, this is the Atlanta area. So maybe there was a helicopter shining a spotlight or something. But um, if there wasn't, it suggests that, they were both accessing the same reality as opposed to having their own sort of experiences inside their head. Mm. Now it's so amazing how these experiences can change people's lives for the better and have in so many situations, including my own. Just a couple of years ago, this this talk show, this show was just a hobby of mine that, and I was stuck in a horrible jo- a corporate job that I was dying to get out of. And now I'm able to do this if, as a full time and it's a great blessing but what led me to that was a series of conversations with what i now understand as my spirit guides it started out as a meditation experience i made contact with something that i believed was an intelligence other than my own that had a conversation with me during this meditation session suggested that i quit my job and do this full time and uh Try psychedelics because it'll be easier to communicate with them. And <laughs> you were like, please turned... be right. Please be right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, yes, I took a big leap of faith on these guys for sure. But it's because I did and I kept listening and I kept communicating with what I understand is my spirit guides. I am now doing this full time. And it's like a dream of mine because I was I followed the advice of these otherworldly characters that I met during a meditation session. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, man. Like, did you, so do you have this sense? Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I suppose I know the answer to this, but I'm going to bring it up as, a, as sort of a gateway to another conversation. Do you think this was a part of you or a part of you? <laughs> In other words, was it... That's the question, man. You see, that I go back and forth. I have conversations with with different people who had different experiences and different understandings and do research on this, and I have no idea. I don't know if this is a part of my consciousness that's deep and buried that has this knowledge somehow, but 
I, I lean towards no. I, I lean towards something outside myself because some of the things that it has communicated to me, I don't think I could have known. Uh, right. So that's the, that's the part that kind of leads me to think probably not part of me. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sympathetic to that because I resisted the idea that these phenomena were somehow self-generated for the longest time because like we all want there to be something that's not just human beings right behind all this. Um, but I've come to suspect that the problem with trying to figure that out really lies within our own uh, misunderstanding of what it, the internal world and the external world is. You know mm. what I mean? Um, the idea that those are distinctions that we've set up and really everything does have a degree of connectedness to it. Um, and, you know, you do find these older, uh, these older traditions that speak of things like higher selves and, and the daemon, almost in this sort of relationship, like a uh, video game player and video game character, you know? So that would, you know, I'm, I'm not the video game character when I play it, but I kind of am, you know, I'm controlling the, the, the moves and I'm sort of helping them make moral decisions. Obviously some stuff's out of my control. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of wonder if, if that's not an aspect of it as well. And you see this all the you see this all the time in the alien abduction stuff. It 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 kills me, you know. Um for example, um, I think we need to scrutinize aliens' pronouns a little bit more. Um some people uh talk about having this conversation with these beings and they say, you know, your well-being is important to us. And people always assume the us refers to the aliens, but you know, it could mean us, me and you, we're the same thing. Like your well-being is important to us because we're the same thing. But you also see these these, these things. I mean, if you if you want to have your mind blown, uh, people don't talk about this book that much, even though it's not necessarily obscure. Um, the communion letters are are, are a compilation of of the correspondence that Ann and Whitley received, and all throughout that book, you see these messages from these beings that are like you know. I am one with the one who is all, you know, the, it, I am the, you are the me within the, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a great exchange between, um, between this, this experiencer and what he thinks is God. And, uh, he says, you know, what's your name? And he says, my name's Gary. What's your name? And he says, well, does it matter? You know, God is Gary. Gary is God. <laughs> it's like, Okay, you know, um, and if you can do some mental gymnastics from a Christian perspective and make that work, if anybody's concerned about that, um, you know, the kingdom of God is within. But um, but it does. When you set that alongside the amount of intimate knowledge that these things always have of us, you know, they know us better than we know ourselves, as as you alluded to. Um, And uh, some of these older ideas that you find in different cosmologies of people having things like you know, spirit, spirit animals or, uh, or familiars, which, you know, believe it or not, there's some ambiguity in sort of the witchcraft tradition of whether or not the, the familiar was actually an aspect of the witch's soul. Like there's some indication that that's the case. Of course, the animals that these familiars were, were often things that people would compare to souls or, you know, use as sort of a, a, a metaphor for the soul. So it kind of put some ambiguity in there, but, um, you know, you also have these ideas like in, 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 some of the Norse belief systems, you had uh, this idea of the, the the philia, which was like this sort of female zoomorphic follower that would sort of accompany you your entire life, and it was it was you, but it was also somehow separate and distinct from you at the same time. Um, so it's it's a fascinating topic, and it's one of those things that I think we're going to have to get comfortable with not knowing the answer to. <laughs> That's the thing that kills me about these these topics. Um, you know, I think that a lot of these things we're just going to 
never really have the answer to and until maybe maybe until we die you know yeah along the same lines of that we are god and this is some kind of overarching intelligence that is connected to us in some way it also leads to theories about simulation and what if this is some sort of simulated reality or like a video game that we are not really in it's our avatars but we have some sort of divine spark or maybe our real selves is outside of this this matrix or holographic reality sending us clues and those clues appear as paranormal phenomena those clues appear as ghosts or aliens but it's really us with a video game controller uh, trying to get to the next level you know yeah i i I appreciate simulation theory um as a metaphor but i guess the problem that i always run into is people always speculate that that higher order of reality is going to somehow look like what we have in this level of reality does that make any sense? So the idea that there are computers and video games or that there are even things called computers and video games, you know, you know what I mean? So I think with that unknowableness, like it's it's fine to talk about sort of a layered reality, but I think to to think that to think that we are literally video game characters because that's been the trajectory of our existence in this reality is a little bit um well, I don't think that's incredibly logical. But um you know, that sort of layered reality in that sense that there is some sort of message coming through from it and that a lot of what we interpret is a construct, I think are all very important things. One of my one of my favorite memes that I've seen in the past like five years, people are probably tired of hearing me bring this up, but it's a meme of uh, the tide coming in and there's this guy like hammering nails into the tide as it comes in and uh, the, the tide says reality and each nail says language. <laughs> And I love that because it shows how how uh, we are kept sane because we like to put things in little boxes, you know. Mm. Yeah, man. Now let's close on this. What do you think about what is happening with aerospace companies and places of high strangeness like Skinwalker Ranch, the Meadow, Blind Frog Ranch, all these new places that are popping up? That strangely enough. Aerospace companies are going and not necessarily looking in the sky, but they're looking underground for anomalies, magnetic anomalies, uh, all sorts of technology and experiments that they're doing out there, probably to weaponize something. But what do you think about some of those things that are going on? Well, you know, the Skinwalker is the example that I'm going to run with at first, although I think you were the one who hit me to blind frog. So I appreciate that. Um, all those years ago. Um it's it's interesting to me because if you look back through some of Valet's old diaries, um, and buried in the footnotes are allusions to, um, if memory serves, security personnel at Skinwalker having to sign uh, waivers about uh, nonviolent weapons testing on them and stuff. So it's like we've we've kind of had a sense that this is going on from the start. Some people, um, some people whose work I admire, quite frankly, um, will take a lot of these data points and say there's never been anything to it it's all just a cover for uh for you know for the for the military to to play their little games i i'm a little i'm a little bit less sympathetic to that because if you look at places like the uinta basin and a lot of these other hot spots um there's oftentimes a history of, of high strangeness in the area um and even if there's not, there's a history of, of strange activity prior to, you know, these these aerospace firms involvement. Right. So 
why do we see these things in the same place? Um, I think that there are a couple of things going on. Uh, I don't think that it's all air cover for these for the, for this R and don't think that's that doesn't make any sense given the timelines. I think that option number one is that uh, they are trying to harness something, um, which is kind of the idea that I like. It's kind of sci-fi that you like have like a, a chamber on your weapon that harnesses ghost energy or something, you know? Um, but uh, the option number two, which is kind of the one that I probably think. Okay, sorry, let's back up. That's option number one. Option number two is to just try to find out what the heck is is there to see if it can be weaponized or it can be harnessed or to see if it, you know. Maybe we might not really, be, we, we might be looking for ghosts, but we're hoping that we'll discover some sort of mechanism that will give us limitless energy, mm. you know, as, as a byproduct. Because people underestimate how many discoveries are, you know, complete chance from from trying to discover something else. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of the pharmaceutical in- industry is like that. They're like, well, we've got a pill and we made it for this, but it actually really seems to help better with this. So let's market it that way. So so that's option number two. And then option number three, which is the one that I, I kind of, sits between the two and I think is might be going on is that these places with their reputations do provide an amount of plausible deniability for these things to be tested and, you know, for R and D to be used in the field. Um, not, it's different than, it's different than, than me saying that they made it all up to, to cover it. It's, it's, they're, they're saying, okay, we need to find these places that have strange reputations because we're going to be doing some strange stuff. And if anybody comes back and wants to say that it was us, we can say, Oh no, it was, you know, it was the spooky skinwalker or whatever that's doing it. I don't know which one is going on. Um, places skinwalker specifically has become for me a bit like Roswell. And the fact that like, there's just so much stuff coming in about it so many contradictions um something is going on there but like at this point i think we'll never get to the bottom of it publicly because it's just the the well has been poisoned if you know what i mean yeah yeah and i think that our government has probably used aliens as a scapegoat for a few things in the past so it's very interesting that they're releasing all this stuff and the pentagon has ufo departments and it makes it very hard to trust anything that ever comes out of our mainstream government or media yeah you've got this you've got this like history of military abductions which there's something to it you know um, my labs is what a lot of people call them i (laughs) i make a lot of enemies with this stance that i'm about to share here but i might as well share it again um i mean there is there is a history of of authority structures using the UFO topic to their own means, to their own ends, you know, um, you know, go back to Bill Moore's speech, go back to any number of things like that. They've been in bed with this whole complex since, uh, since the cold war era. Right. And the idea that it would suddenly have changed on a dime with the New York times article, I find a bit, a bit laughable, not to say that there's not something in the Tic Tac videos and not to say that the people involved aren't really trying to get to the bottom of it, but like, there's always this sense that there's this unseen hand pulling strings and stuff. You know, the example that I like to use is, I can't remember what it was, but like, you know, they said that, oh, the Navy's starting to take UFO reports again. And I said, okay, you know, all the, all the people who are into disclosure were saying, oh, that's great. It's disclosure. It's transparency. And I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, or they're crowdsourcing eyes on the skies looking for foreign <laughs> incursions. You know, here we are recording this just a couple of days after the balloon, balloon fiasco. Um, yeah. It makes me think we're not supposed to know the answer to this stuff. A, a few researchers, researchers that I've spoken with that are involved with things in the U, Intel Basin, they tell me things like the phenomena is 
10 to 20 steps ahead and it's it knows what we're doing and it can mimic not only the the highest technology we have but it one-ups it and it does something incredible that we could never understand so it seems that we could never come to grips with what the true nature of this phenomena is and it doesn't seem like we're supposed to either I really suspect that's the case, and I know that's not a very satisfying answer for a lot of folks who who want to get a piece of a UFO or this or that. Not to say that there aren't pieces of UFOs. I, I think that there's a way that that could work, but I think that some people would criticize you and I entertaining that idea for trying to slip an almost like theological impulse into all this, that there's some metaposition intelligence that can do whatever it likes. But it doesn't necessarily even need to be, um, you know divine for lack of a better term you know the example that i always use is that you know less so now because my kids just turned four but when they were young like if i didn't want them to have something i could you know i could take a i don't know a spoon let's say and i could bring the spoon right in front of their face and i could pull it out before they could grab it or you know even (laughs) if they did grab it i was strong enough i'm getting that spoon back like you're not you're not going to get this spoon you can get really close to it i can let you look at it but you're not going to get the spoon and I kind of wonder if if that's not, especially with the way this, this 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 these phenomena tend to toy with us. I suspect that that might be sort of sort of what's going on. I think you might have hit the nail on the head. Um, it the the UFO phenomenon, whatever it is, I think is in complete control of how much we know about it. And some people might think that sounds quasi-religious, but you know, I would argue that the UFO phenomena is more embedded in in a spiritual reality than it is a physical reality. Yes, man. I love this. Great conversation. Joshua, we're going to have to do this again soon. Before you head out, let everyone know where they can find the book, social media, all your good stuff. Well, thank you so much. This was this was a blast. Um, so yeah, uh, you can find uh, me at joshuacutchin.com. Uh, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N. No S, just like one cut on your chin. <laughs> I've gotten enough uh, uh, restaurant reservations mispronounced. I feel like I have to say that. Um, and you can find links to all my, uh, interviews there, a list of all my books, ecology of souls, uh, volumes one and two and the companion volume are all available from Amazon. The companion volume is not essential. The companion volume is just the references and the appendices, which I have also made freely available on my website. So if you just get the first two books, you have all those references that you just go to my website and look them up. It's pretty hard, easy to find, or, you know, it's also available in a compi- combined Kindle format. So it was just it was just a function of it being a huge book. Uh, <laughs> I just want to separate it. So that's where you can find all that. You can also um, find a way to contact me on my website and get a collection of Ecology of Souls at a reduced rate signed from me. Awesome. Joshua, thank you so much. We'll do it again soon. And until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. We'll talk again tomorrow. We'll see you then. <laughs>